Well, it's, I know it's a dangerous thing for a preacher to say this, but it is not my purpose to go on too long this morning. I know it's not comfortable behind a mask, and I feel a little bit guilty in not having to wear a mask. So I'm aware of that. <clears throat> Our task is quite a big one. It is to look at two chapters in Hebrews, th- in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, <coughs> particularly from uh, verse Uh, 7 of chapter 3. So far, the letter to the Hebrews we have seen, its great theme is to exalt Christ and to show his supremacy, his supremacy as God, his supremacy as man, his supremacy as the apostle, as the leader of our faith. And it will continue on that theme, particularly taking up his supremacy as a high priest and as a mediator. But interspersed within the letter are passages of application of what's been said, Uh, passages where the writer, aware of the needs of his hearers, aware of the temptations they have, uh, he particularly gets under their skin, as it were, and and pushes home the truth uh, and what they need to do. And there's a kindness and an instruction about all that he has to say. He's not bullying his hearers, his readers. He is giving us, by and large, it is objective, factual material, which he then is saying, now this is why you should do what you should do. Up to this point in the letter, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 the application has been largely in positive terms, largely in terms of positive exhortation. But now there is something of a switch of theme, a switch of gear, if you like, that he now begins to bring in another note, and there's only one word for it. It's a note of warning. And this note of warning will surface from time to time in the letter. But when you take the letter as a whole... It's, in fact, a very tender and gracious letter continually reminding us that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us and can help us. But this doesn't alter the fact that there is, uh, from time to time, warning, a negative exhortation. And we need this. You notice he's writing this to professing Christians, to believers, And because we are sinners saved by grace, not angels on our way to heaven, but we are saved sinners, we have to face up to the fact that we do need this element within our psyche in order to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can't live day by day on bottles of medicine. And therefore, most of the time, we need food. But you can't just go on day by day on food and, water and drink, but never, ever take medicine because there are such things as spiritual illness, spiritual uh, problems. And what we have here in Hebrews is a perfect blend of manner, of food, of positive, and also of some medicine. And we're looking at some medicine uh, in Hebrews 3 and 4. 
And the great problem that he is addressing, and I think this is the overall theme to this section of the letter, uh, which helps us to understand, although there are many, many different things we could say about the letter, the great issue is the danger of unbelief. Now, he's not saying the danger of intellectual problems with the faith. He's saying unbelief, believing not. Believing not or unbelief is a matter of the heart as well as the mind. And verse 12 of chapter 3, an evil heart of unbelief. And we have to say that that is the endemic disease of the sons of Adam. Uh, We are surrounded by all the evidence we need of a creator God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The creation is full of instruction as to his beauty, as to his wisdom, as to his power. And there is deep in the heart of every person a knowledge that there is right and wrong, even though we fail to keep to that unwritten rule. Uh, The evidence is all around us, but the attitude of not believing the evidence, of deliberately suppressing it and holding it down, keeping the lid on it, that is unbelief. And that's the problem that even Christians can become infected with. Even those who are truly born again can struggle at times with unbelief. And what we have in these chapters is antidotes to unbelief. The medicine to take, either as a preventative or if we feel the problem beginning to overcome us, the the medicine to take to, to, to dispel the sin of unbelief. And we're looking at this here under six headings. I won't be long under any of the headings Six headings, six ways to overcome unbelief. And the first one is laboring, laboring. And I take that from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You notice how he connects laboring with not giving way to unbelief. Now that may surprise you greatly to find the word laboring here, especially as often within this chapter he's talking about rest. And indeed, if you have an understanding of the gospel, that it is by the grace of God we are saved and not through our good works, you might be even more surprised to find the word labor. And yet that is the word he uses. And it's not the only occasion in the New Testament where we find this word applying to faith in Christ. For example, in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says to the crowds following him, he says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat, or that food, which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. Yes, you're all concerned about what works we should do. You're all concerned about how you can get to heaven and in terms of John 6, what particular new Pharisaic instructions uh, you should be following. 
But look, if you are that interested in works, here's the work. Work hard to believe in Christ. Work hard to, to use the means that I give you. And here is the means, I am the bread of life. In other words, here's the focus for all kinds of diligence and effort. It is to see that you get into a state of heart and mind which is one of faith in Jesus Christ. And to see with all your diligence, with all your heart and mind, that this is what you continue to do. Now that is rather countercultural, at least church cultural in our day, when it is just so commonly put across as part of normal Christian living that you, yes, you're saved, you have this uh, time of wonderful turning to Christ and God has mercy upon you through faith in him, but after that, all you have to do is to just float through, uh, that God is... He's going to provide everything for you. There's going to be no problems, no sickness, no difficulties, persecution. Uh, well, God will zap them pretty quick. And he's saying, no, that's not, the, that's not the attitude. The attitude is this. You have got to work at it. You've got to make sure that you continue diligently in this way of faith in Jesus Christ. And don't think it's going to come naturally. Sometimes it doesn't come naturally. It takes moral and spiritual effort. Reminds me of Martin Luther's definition of prayer as the sweat of the soul. It isn't always like that, but sometimes it is like that. It's the sweat of the soul. And we can say that faith sometimes is the sweat of the soul. Take this young person in a lecture theatre or in a sixth form classroom and the teacher, the lecturer is bombarding them with evolution, evolutionism and bombarding them with secular humanism. What attitude are they going to have? Well, of course, they've got to use their minds but there's also got to be a focus and a determination not to desert Jesus Christ, not to desert his word. There, there's an effort in that believing. Or in a situation such as we're in today within our own society. The society, yes, thank God there is gratitude within the society because of the labors of emergency workers and doctors and nurses and we thank God for them. But there is no gratitude to God. And we have to, lab- we have to keep hold on the fact that God is the great giver of all good. God is the, the one behind all these secondary causes. We've got to work at that in our spirit, in our soul, and say, yes, my trust is in God and in God alone. So laboring, that's the first one. The second is learning, learning. Now that is clearly the purpose of the writer here. He's teaching, reminding, we should say, the Hebrew Christians of what's gone on in the past. He's giving them not emotional blackmail, but he's giving them factual objective information from the Old Testament scriptures as to the problems of faith and unbelief. And he's taking them back uh, to the period of the wilderness wandering, which went on for 40 years. And particularly, he's taking them back 
to Numbers chapter 14. We haven't got time to more than glance at this. Numbers 14, when the spies had come back from Canaan with the first ripe grapes uh, and with a wonderful report on this land flowing with milk and honey, but they all said there are too many giants in the land. The cities are walled, the cities are strong, the people are are vicious and aggressive, and we felt like grasshoppers. And that was the majority report from the 12 spies. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who had a different report. The report was this, we're well able to get in there, we're well able to conquer by God's grace, because God has promised us this. But the problem was this that they, the people of Israel were inclined to believe the majority report. And God, in Numbers 14, verse 26, The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, As ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said will be a prey, Then will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years. You see, God is saying this. You don't need evidence here. You've had me bring you out of Egypt. You've had me, uh, it's only a year or two on, by the way, in Numbers 14, since the Exodus. You've You've got in clear memory how I provided for you. Since you set off, how I've protected you, how I've divided the Red Sea. It's not lack of information. It's a lack of willingness to take hold of that in faith. And so he warns them, does the writer to the Hebrews, that that attitude brings about a response of anger from God. So I swear in my wrath they should not enter into my rest. And Psalm 95, the bit we didn't sing, is in fact the quotation that's used in Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. The writer is saying it's the same today as then. A refusal to believe or a return into that attitude is a disaster. And you should work hard. You should fear lest you get into that state of mind. It's effectively the same lesson as you find in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says everything that happened with Moses 
and the people who were baptized into the cloud and baptized into the sea, everything that happened to them was for our good, to teach us. The lesson is the same. Don't think God has changed. Don't think the issues have changed. Just because you're finding it difficult, you still must persevere in the faith of Jesus Christ. You cannot go back to your old religion. That's the second L. The third L is listening. Listening, the right kind of listening. And I turn you to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. It's the same exhortation as you get at the beginning of chapter 2, really. The need to listen in the right way to the word of God. Because he's saying whether it was in the days of Moses or Abraham or whether it's today, admittedly in different forms, in, under different economies, the first, the Old Testament with types and shadows, today everything clear and crystal clear, in Jesus Christ, but it's essentially the same thing is happening. The gospel is being preached to you. And you must mix your hearing with faith. You must guard against unbelief, the first motions of it, because the problem arises not now in your intellect, but it arises in your heart. And we have several references to this in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verse 8, harden not your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 10, they do always err in their hearts. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Chapter 4, verse 7, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. If you were the listener to this sermon, you would be in no mistake what the, the writer to the Hebrews was preaching here. He's preaching the problem of unbelief. It arises in the heart. And the problem is this, you mustn't let it harden. You mustn't let it be like one of these soft, putty-like materials that when you spread it, it hardens up. You mustn't have a conscience like that. You mustn't have a, a spiritual frame of mind like that. You must mix your hearing with faith. You must guard against the first motions of unbelief. And if you feel it's overcoming, you must cry to God for grace, for the gift of increasing faith and grace to cling to Jesus Christ, to cling to his word. Listen with faith. Fourthly, longing. I think longing is part of his antidote to unbelief. He's talking, notice how in chapter 4 he moves seamlessly as he talks about uh, faith. He moves seamlessly to reminding them what it was that the Old Testament people of God refused to do. They refused to go into Canaan. That for them was the land of rest, the land flowing with milk and honey. That was an anti, sorry, a type of heaven. 
There was a real good there that they missed out on. And he's saying, listen, there's a real good here that you mustn't miss out on. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now, one of the complicating factors in chapter 4 is that we have at least three different references to what this rest is. The one is an allusion to the land of Canaan. The other is the Sabbath day, the seventh day under the Old Testament economy. And then, of course, there is heaven itself. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. But as you look carefully at each of these three examples of rest, it's quite clear that the dominant example is the rest of the gospel, the rest, that is, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. For verse 10 of chapter 4 says, For he that has entered into his rest hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his. And then verse 11, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. In other words, this is something that's in the here and now. Heaven is in the future. That's the final fructification of this rest. The Sabbath day was ordained in the past. That is an anticipation of the rest. And what happened over Canaan or didn't happen over Canaan, that's a type that points to the rest. But the writer is saying at this present time, the, 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 the issue is, the major thought is this, that there is a rest now that you can enter when you see some of your own works. In other words, it's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of your own good works. And only Jesus, our great apostle, can lead you into that. And only Jesus, our great apostle, can keep you in that. In other words, there should be a longing in our hearts always to be resting in Christ as our saviour and as our Lord. And anything that takes us away from that is unbelief. Anything that says you've got to add your two penny worth. Anything which says you need this and that added to your religion. Whether in the days of the Hebrews it was a priestly ministry of an Old Testament type. Or whether in our day it's some other kind of added bit to the gospel. No, no. There is this rest that's in Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of our faith and we don't need any other leader we don't need any other apostle Uh, Joshua wasn't the apostle to lead them into the promised land Uh, Joshua could never give them that real heart rest that rest is through faith in Christ very briefly the last two L's and this one is also here and it's a surprise perhaps I say loving loving there's laboring There's learning, there's listening, there's longing, there's loving. Because this is not just individual Christians individually trying to resist the devil and walk on in faith. Notice how he broadens it out in chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart 
of unbelief in departing from the living God. Well, that could be an individual exhortation, of course, it is. But notice the next verse. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There are different ways we exhort one another. By just gathering together to worship God. That's a, a kind of exhortation. By having a kindness in the way in which we help one another and encourage one another. Take an interest. He brings this out again later in the letter. Uh, the need to care for one another. Uh, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So there's a togetherness. In the, that's part of the medicine. And then finally, a looking. Looking to Jesus Christ. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And then later on in the letter, he'll say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then at the end of chapter 4, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. This makes all the difference. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who cannot but be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There's a throne of grace and of mercy. And as we look to him, as we look to his sympathy, as we look to his integrity without sin, as we look to the fact that there's mercy when we fall and fail, that enables us to overcome an evil heart of unbelief. Brothers and sisters, let us take note. And if today you are still in unbelief, let me remind you that this, if you are a stranger to God's grace and you refuse to believe in him and you refuse to submit to his word, remember that you have someone who's angry with you because that's the word that's used, the word wrath as I have sworn in my wrath, if that means they shall not enter into my rest, God will not let you into heaven. If that's your state of heart and mind, you need to repent of it and to trust in Christ, the living Savior of all who believe in him.